Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 13 and beginning in verse 1 and reading the first seven verses today. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We have, since uh, the beginning of our study in Romans, learned that our salvation, our being put right with God, is a work that God accomplishes through the sinless life of Jesus Christ through his atoning death, through his bodily resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. We have also learned that God is the only one who can accomplish this, because apart from God's intervention, we are spiritually dead in Adam. Adam's sin was our sin. And because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and because the wages of sin is death, it is only by the grace and mercy of God that any of us are saved from this eternal death. God brings this about by means of His Holy Spirit who resurrects us from this spiritually dead condition, gives us new life, makes us a new creation, And by faith, we embrace Christ as our Savior and thus begin a new life in Him. Now, over the last few weeks, we have been studying how this new life is practically worked out in the life of the believer. Paul has been identifying those characteristics that mark this new life in Christ and how these come to bear in our call to service within the body of Christ, in our relationships one with another, in our relationships with those who are outside the body of Christ, with unbelievers, and also how they work themselves out in our responses to 
those who are antagonistic towards us. Now, one would think that that just about covers it, except Paul recognizes that not all persons are equal. He recognizes that there are those who have power and authority that go beyond what the average person has, and that as individual disciples of Christ, we need to understand some things about these who are generally recognized as ruling authorities. In the case of Paul in the first century church, this would be Caesar and all his subordinates in the Roman Empire, but all the way down to the local magistrates and others who have been appointed to uphold and enforce the law. Now, we need to say a couple of things right here because Paul is not only thinking of the context of the Roman Empire because by the time of the Roman Empire, there had been multiple empires and ruling authorities over this portion of the world. What Paul is declaring here is a general default position of any Christian towards any ruling authority at any time in history. At the same time, he is not declaring that this is a blanket declaration over every circumstance. For he knows as well as anyone that should the ruling authority decree something that is diametrically opposed to the expressed will of God, that a believer has no choice but to disobey Caesar and instead be faithful to God, even if that means suffering for the sake of his name. But the other interesting point here is that the Scriptures are largely silent on this issue. In fact, these seven verses are the largest single portion of Scripture that speaks specifically to the Christian's general attitude towards what we would call the state. Paul writes similarly to Titus saying, remind them, or the congregation that he serves, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. And that's the extent of what he says there. The Apostle Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then... He adds to that a couple of verses later, honor the emperor. But very little, really. Jesus says little about the authority of the state during his ministry, but he does address it when he is being interrogated by Pilate. And the governor says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And the only other moment when Jesus addresses the issue is the question of paying taxes. Beyond that, Jesus teaches his disciples to realize that they are citizens of a different kingdom. And as he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So we want to exercise a certain amount of caution here and not use these words of Paul to make arguments that he himself is not making. He is not endorsing nor condemning one form of government over 
another. Christians living in totalitarian regimes must prayerfully figure these things out in that context the same way that Christians living in democratic republics must figure these things out in the context in which they find themselves. So if you are a Christian living in a totalitarian country, the words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, does not mean that you are to self-report if the dictator commands every citizen to turn in all of your Christian neighbors for reprogramming. By the same token, those same words do not mean that if you are living in a country that espouses freedom of religion but prohibits a person from praying silently outside of an abortion clinic, as is the case in Great Britain right now, that you are obligated to comply. So how are we to make sense of what Paul is teaching here? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The emphasis here should be upon the words, be subject to, for this is Paul's primary point. Remember, he's just been speaking about the Christian response to those who persecute us. He's advised that we not return evil for evil. He has admonished us to live peaceably with all, to not avenge ourselves, to not be haughty, to live in a countercultural way that might lead others to Christ. And here he is continuing the idea that when it comes to the believer, our overall attitude towards those who are in authority is to demonstrate a proper submission, recognizing that God is ultimately the one who stands behind this person who's been endowed with a level of authority. Now Paul is not de- only declaring that this should be true of Christians, but this should be true of all people. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is a declaration that God has established order in His creation, and God expects every person, whether they are redeemed or not, to conduct themselves in a way that acknowledges His authority. Now, do all people do this? Of course not. We know from chapter 1 of this letter that by their ungodliness and unrighteousness, men have suppressed the truth about God. Even though they were aware of God's eternal power and divine nature, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But none of that changes the fact that God has established His authority on the earth through these governing authorities who have been tasked with keeping lawlessness in check. And where believers are concerned, we are to recognize their God-given authority and pay respect to them by means of a submissive attitude. You will occasionally hear or read of a sect that will claim sovereignty for itself, declaring that the authority of their nation's institutions are illegitimate, and do not apply to them. Those individuals should be concerned 
about Paul's admonishment here when he says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. T.W. Manson has said, resistance to legitimate authority legitimately exercised is wrong. Now, we may wonder why Paul felt a need to address this issue with the brothers who lived in Rome. Was there something specific that he had in mind? Or was this simply a, a general admonishment? Well, while those questions cannot be answered with any degree of certainty, we do know that the Jews who were a part of this fellowship may have had a more difficult time with this issue than did their Gentile brothers and sisters. Deuteronomy 17.15 declared that the Jews could have a king in the land to which God was bringing them, but it would be a king of God's own choosing, and the king would be one of their brothers. They could never have a foreign king over them. So having a pagan emperor was probably a difficult reality for them to accept. We also know from Acts chapter 18 that there was a moment when the Jews were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius because of rioting surrounding a person, we believe, by the name of Crestus, who many have suggested was a reference to Christ. And while that may or may not have been the case, what is without doubt is that they were expelled for reason of rebellion. Another issue for the Jews may have been the issue of taxation. We know that the Jews once asked Jesus to commit to answering such a question in front of witnesses because they saw that yes or no question as a way to be rid of him. But his masterful response robbed them of that opportunity, but it revealed their own distaste for having to financially support a foreign power whose boot upon their neck grew ever more wearisome. Again, these things are not definitive, but they may provide us with some inkling as to why Paul has felt a need to expound upon this issue in this letter to the saints in Rome. But Paul is not only addressing the authority that is a God-given thing, he is also providing a rationale that is difficult to refute. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. Now again, is this universally true, without exception? No, it's not. We have only to point to Jesus' own trial to see that a truly good man, a righteous man, was put to death by Pontius Pilate even though Pilate was reluctant to do it, and yet he allowed that injustice to occur for the simple reason of expediency. It was far easier to crucify Christ than it would have been to deal with the political fallout should the Jews riot under his watch in Jerusalem. But Paul's point here is a general one. It is usually true that a ruler will not behave unjustly toward a fine, upstanding citizen within his jurisdiction. 
And so it is incumbent upon Christians in any part of the world to be known for civil behavior that even the most atheistic ruler has trouble finding fault with. And if the truth be known, genuine disciples of Christ are much to be preferred as citizens over non-believing atheists. Some of you may know the name of Richard Dawkins, who is perhaps the best-known atheist in the world today. But even he has been quoted as saying that ridding the public consciousness of God, and he would put that in parentheses or in italics or in quotes, would be troubling. For he admits that the very thought of God watching individuals helps to keep them in line. Now, he completely misunderstands what we know to be true, but his comments offer a backhanded compliment to spirit-transformed Christians while also admitting that his atheistic ideology is incapable of establishing a world in which anyone would really want to live. He was quoted in the British newspaper, The Times, a few years ago saying that if religion were abolished all over the world, it would, quote, give people a license to do really bad things. And then he went on to say that without the presence of a higher being, people may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them. Now for someone who does not believe in the existence of God, Richard Dawkins has made quite a career out of explaining away someone that he insists is not there. I'm not sure how he's done that. But someone is there. And this someone has appointed authorities who are empowered to watch and discipline those who do really bad things. And Paul says, if you do wrong, be afraid. For the ruling authority does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now what did Paul just say in verse 19 of our last chapter? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the ruling authority has been entrusted with a great responsibility, whether they recognize it or not. They are to keep evil in check by wielding not only the authority of God, but also the power of God, which is symbolized in the sword. But have you ever noticed how quickly evil runs rampant when the ruling authority fails in this duty? When the ruling authority does not enforce the law, those who enjoy breaking the law do so with impunity, thus realizing the greatest fears of Richard Dawkins and also establishing the truth of what Paul has contended from the beginning of this letter, that we are not by nature, good people. But rather all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it raises the question, does there ever come a point in time when the believer is allowed to resist? Now that's not an easy question to answer for the circumstances are ever-changing. Certainly when the ruling authority demands that which is contrary to the will of God, one could, in good conscience, resist, but knowing that they will have to suffer for it. 
when the Dutch were hiding Jews in the attics of their homes during World War II and the German authorities were demanding that they be surrendered, those believers did what they considered to be right in the sight of God. Many of them suffered for it when their duplicity was uncovered. Corey Ten Boom would be such a one. And so we would surmise that God is not displeased when we resist the efforts of ruling authorities who are actually engaged in evil themselves. But it is an issue of individual conscience when someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer joins a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. There are believers who would argue that is a step too far. Others would argue that when the ruling authority is engaged in the kind of wholesale genocide that was true of the Reich, that it is thoroughly righteous to rebel in that way. And history is replete with stories that fall on either side of that argument, and it is possible to clearly see the arguments on either side and still not have a clear-cut answer to the ultimate question. But should the time ever arrive in a society where the ruling authority has abdicated their God-given responsibility to such a degree that evil is running rampant, believers should always make use of whatever legal means are available to them to change the ruling authority with the hopes that the next authorities will wield their responsibility rightly. But if that is not possible, If believers find themselves in nations where the totalitarian authorities are so cruel and so evil themselves that Christians are called upon to suffer for the sake of him who died for them, they should do so in a manner that resembles that of their Savior who prayed for those who persecuted him even as they were putting him to death. For as we noted a moment ago, Jesus recognized that the power and authority that Pontius Pilate was wielding was not inherent to the governor, but was on loan to him from God the Father, from the Father of Jesus. And Jesus submitted to it, trusting that the Father was in firm control of what was unfolding. You see, we may not always comprehend the complicated plan of God as it materializes. But let us never forget that whatever befalls us, it is never outside of God's will for us. It is never outside of God's love for us. It is never outside of God's care for us. For whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Therefore, Paul says, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. As Christians, we are to conduct ourselves in a way that is blameless in the sight of God, in a way that brings Him glory. And if that conflicts with the ruling authorities who govern over us, then we are to willingly submit to whatever discipline they seek to dispense. In all of it, we are to conduct ourselves in a way that displays love for our neighbor in a way that stands for God's ultimate good, in a way that creates in us a clear conscience. So may His wisdom 
always govern our decisions when it comes to ruling authorities. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray briefly today.